There is probably one conspiracy theory out of hundreds, thousands, you may have never heard of. I was involved in a plot to commit murder, uh, to assassinate John F. Kennedy uh, in the early 60s between the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Kennedy assassination itself. That was Kerry Thornley, T-H-O-R-N-L-E-Y, in an interview he did in the 1990s. Yeah, I was in the Marines with Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, all my life I've been fighting this, this tendency to be typecast as Oswald's Marine Corps buddy because I always, I, I feel like I'm not becoming known in my own right when I become known as simply as somebody who knew Oswald. Kerry was more than just Oswald's buddy. They were friends. They beat the boredom of peacetime soldiers' life by reading and sparring over ideas. The other Marines found Booze a better boredom killer, and teasing the two odd birds was good sport, but not without consequence. Oswald often hit back hard enough to be punished and sent to the brig. Kerry watched and made notes to use later in a novel he planned to write about his fellow soldiers with Lee Harvey Oswald as the hero. After leaving service, Kerry Thornley did write his novel two years before Oswald took a high-powered rifle and shot at the President of the United States in Dallas, Texas, on November 22, 1963. And I'll, you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin, this is from the United Press from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Colony have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding in an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. And I didn't like Kennedy. I was extremely anti-Kennedy myself because I was so much into Ayn Rand, the laissez-faire capitalism, objectivism. And Kennedy was the arch villain of, of, our, uh, of our movement at that time. And... Uh, it was like the hero of my novel jumped up off the pages of my book and shot the president. And it was, it, was, it, it was very weird. Weird indeed. There is no novel, as far as I know, where a man jumps out of his literary skin and turns the world upside down. Nonetheless, Kerry Thornley, the first writer to portray Lee Harvey Oswald, became himself a prime suspect in the greatest unresolved murder case of the 20th century. However, I thought it was a coincidence. I wound up dismissing it as a coincidence until 1975. There are, of course, coincidences, but this is of a different order. For most of the 1960s, Kerry denied emphatically that he had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination. He didn't like him, but kill him? No way. Also hard to see how his pal, Lee Harvey Oswald, often nicknamed Ozzy Rabbit after the cartoon character, could have done such a thing. But there he was, spread over front pages and television screens, caught red-handed. What happened that changed Kerry's mind and sent him down the rabbit hole where mobs of conspiracy buffs still poke about looking for clues? We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. 
And uh, then uh, along about uh, 1975, to be exact, when Watergate was, uh, was really in full swing. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. I began to realize that uh, uh, these Watergate burglars had a lot in common with some people I knew in New Orleans that were always talking about assassinating Kennedy. Suddenly, one conspiracy merged with another. However, it became very obvious with Watergate that they had been involved. It was two men that I knew in, the, in New Orleans, and one of them was just like a Watergate plumber. And it was, he was, also had mafia connections. He knew a whole lot about the CIA. He was just uh, like detailed stuff about CIA operations that hadn't been published then. And uh, he knew a whole lot about what was going to happen in the future. He said he was going to make Nixon president after he assassinated Kennedy. I am Andrei Kodrascu, and in this podcast, we try to untangle the weird relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and Carrie Wendell Thornley, and between fiction and reality. Here comes Oswald down the hall again. Did you buy that rifle? You people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. A few days later, Oswald is shot and killed by Jack Ruby while being transferred to the county jail. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their... Ruby, the owner of a Dallas strip joint, said that he did it because he couldn't stand to see the First Lady of the United States grieving for her husband, while the assassin is brought before the slow-turning wheels of justice. But Lee Harvey Oswald did not stand trial shortly after 11 that Sunday morning, with half a hundred newsmen, three television crews, and 70 police on hand, he in turn was fatally wounded as publicly as any man in history. And with Oswald out of the way came many unanswered questions. And the rise from the grave of the conspiracy mindset, a dormant but invasive and aggressive bush that blooms periodically like kazoo in our American minds from the founding of the Republic to this day. In the post-war America of the 1950s, Oswald and Thornley had similar beliefs born of their time. At 17, Kerry Thornley had a slight ironic expression, as if surprised by the camera in the middle of an interior monologue. At the same age, Lee Oswald looked more innocent, but also surprised. And they resemble each other physically, Two young men setting off to change the world, surprised by a future they can't imagine. Our story begins in 1958. A couple of bored American adolescents in a small American city, Whittier, California, are debating whether Whittier is the most boring city in America. The high schoolers are Kerry Thornley and Greg Hill, one of them, 
listening, unconvinced, the other determined to do something. They had first gone to talk at Carrie's house, but around 10 p.m., Carrie's mom came down to tell them to be quiet because people were trying to sleep. So they went out on the street and walked on without pausing their talk when a cop car pulled alongside. The officer walked out and said to the boys, what's so important you have to disturb the peace around here? Carrie said something to the effect that if Whittier got any quieter, it might have to call itself a graveyard instead of a city. This was the middle 50s. And uh, middle 50s suburbia America uh, was a thing in itself. Uh, and uh, it, it, we didn't even fit with that very well, but you know, it was, it was before rock and roll, before Elvis Presley. Um, it was before the youth culture. A friend who knew both of them from high school is Bob Newport. Most of the kids were upper-middle-class, upper-class kids from Orange County, right-wing backgrounds, and all of that. Um, uh, Greg Carey and I were middle-middle-class, uh, and uh, <laughs> so we didn't have a whole lot in common with, with our classmates. And one of our favorite activities was spending late nights in bowling alleys. Um, Greg looked much older than I did and somewhat older than Carrie. And from time to time, Greg could actually buy beer. Sitting around in a bowling alley in 1958, to be exact, somewhere in the vicinity of Whittier, California. Uh, and we were uh, discussing... Uh, philosophy and we we're talking about order and chaos and uh, my theory was a Darwinistic theory that uh, order uh, emerged from chaos uh, and was in fact simply the prevailing form of chaos and uh, Greg's theory was that order was projected on the universe that it didn't exist at all that it was a creation of the human mind that order was entirely in perception and had nothing to do with what was going on out there in a completely chaotic universe and in boring 1950s America, in the suburban town where Richard Nixon went to school, this was a revelation. What we need is not so much an explanation for order, we both agree to that. Uh, what the world needs is an explanation for chaos and why there's so much of it. And so there, at that point we decided to start a religion uh, worshipping the Greek goddess of chaos and confusion, who uh, the Romans called uh, Discordia and thus Discordianism was born. One of, the, one of the few regrets I have in my life is I was not there that night that Carrie and Greg had the epiphany. I wasn't there. Uh, they both talked about it lots of times. Uh, so exactly, I don't know how much beer they had, if they had had any. And remember, these are the days before drugs. Did the boys know what they had discovered? After the war, returning to a normal civilian life was the widely shared dream of their parents' generation. They craved quiet and safety after the slaughter and carnage of the first half of the 20th century. 
If gods were involved, boredom was for their parents a much greater god than Eris, the goddess of chaos. The older generation had known Eris too well, and they were not unaware that chaos lurked in the shadow of the Cold War and that only the atomic umbrella sheltered the world from her. The boys had half-seriously stumbled on a fear that haunted the suburbs. This is how they described their bowling alley revelation in the Principia Discordia Manifesto. Suddenly the place became devoid of light, then an utter silence enveloped them and a great stillness was felt. Then came a blinding flash of intense light as though their very psyches had gone nova. The Lady of Discord, Eris, revealed herself in this light and issued her commandments regarding the disposition of the five copies of the manifesto the boys typed up the next day. Written on one of the copies is directions to send one to the President of the United States. After high school, the new religion created on a lark and their all-night beer drinking was put aside when Kerry joined the Marines. When they first joined up, they were just like your high school friends, the guy next door, or you yourself. And above all, they learned to have faith in their service because the Marine Corps trains each and every one of them individually, gives each confidence in himself and in all other Marines. Be ready, be trained, be a Marine. At the El Toro Marine Air Base in Orange County in early 1959, Kerry Thornley met the young Lee Harvey Oswald, who had joined the Marines at 17, following his older brother, Bobby. Uh, we were introduced to one another because we were both atheists. Somebody said, hey, Carrie, you want to meet another atheist? And I said, all right. And they took me over to this hut, and there's this guy sitting on a bucket, and he's looking up at me with this little smile that Oswald almost always had, even, even when he was being accused of the Kennedy assassination, this little mysterious, tight little grin, you know, and he looks up at me, and I say, uh, I hear you're an atheist. And he says, yeah. He says, I think the best religion is communism. In his book, Oswald, Kerry writes, Lee Harvey Oswald was the outfit's eight ball. He was what they called in the army, yard bird, and in the Marine Corps, a shit bird. He was a born loser. Oswald gave the delusion of being persecuted. The other troops in the outfit called him Comrade Osvaldovich. Others called him Ozzy Rabbit after the naughty cartoon character. Oswald walked around with a copy of the Communist Manifesto, always ready to debate anyone who might have taken offense. Well, with that attitude, it was inevitable that Oswald got into trouble with some soldiers, but also his superiors in the Marines. His professed admiration for Marxism did not help, but neither did his challenges to the Marine regulars in matters of discipline. He thought himself superior to the rubes ordering him about. Kerry writes, To him, the mark of destiny was clearly visible on his forehead, and that others were blind to it was Oswald's eternal source of aggravation. 
What Oswald needed was a movement he could join to usher his vision in his lifetime. Later, Carey told the Warren Commission, Oswald looked in the eyes of future people as some kind of tribunal, and he wanted to be on the winning side, so that 10,000 years from now, people would look at the history books and say, well, this man was ahead of his time. He was concerned with his image in history. Carey thought Oswald an idealist and a dreamer. He was going to lead a revolution. The year was 1959. Well, yes. At the age of 20, every reader of radical utopias is a humanitarian. Mao, Stalin, and Ho Chi Minh wrote poetry. Pol Pot fired up his followers in Paris cafes with Maoism filtered through Jean-Paul Sartre. The question is, why don't most young humanitarians become assassins or mass murderers? And one answer may be that they take their poetry and ideas so seriously that they become founders of cults and religions. And if their followers don't listen, they must die. Kerry Thornley, the co-founder of Discordianism, might have been one of them if Eris had not granted him a sense of humor. Oswald wasn't so lucky, alas. And then he gave me a copy of 1984 to read. Okay. And people say, why would a socialist give somebody a copy of 1984, which is essentially a, a critique of socialism? Kerry was sure Oswald must have seen the fallacies in socialism that George Orwell saw. If Oswald failed to see the obvious satire and argument, he must have seriously lacked the saving grace of humor. It had to be a joke, Kerry concluded. Maybe that explained his tight little smile. Oswald was laughing to himself. You know, this is a lot of fun, this, mm-hmm. this playing with these, these words from 1984 and... and uh, and the Soviet Union, like Comrade, and so on and so forth. This is a lot of fun, because sometimes we can switch into communism, and sometimes we can switch into Big Brother, talking about, you know, sometimes we can switch into 1984 frame of reference, and sometimes we can switch into the Russian communist frame of reference, and nobody else in the outfit would know where we were at. And sometimes you can switch to a place you can come back from. They played to the gallery, but the game was serious. Kerry recounts a heated discussion they had on this subject. I challenged him to back up Soviet allegations concerning imperialism. At this, he became very excited. If you ever go overseas, Thornley, you'll see what I mean. He said that my fellow Marines equaled any Nazi stormtroopers for brutality. His face became chalky as he discussed this matter, and he appeared to be genuinely sick. So I didn't press him for details. When I got to the Far East, I kept a keen eye out for U.S. imperialism. Mr. Oswald, uh, I'm curious about your personal background. Uh, if you could tell us something about uh, where you came from, your education, and uh, your, your career to date, we'd be interested. I'd be very happy to. I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Uh, During my junior high school days, I attended Beauregard Junior High School. I attended that school for two years. Uh, Then I went to Warren Eastern High School, and I attended that uh, school for over a year. 
then my family and I moved to Texas, uh, where we have many relatives, and uh, I continued my schooling there. Uh, then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, position of Buck Sergeant, and uh, I served honorably, having been discharged. That was Oswald on WDSU, a New Orleans radio station in August 1963. Since his birth in New Orleans on October 18, 1939, Lee Harvey Oswald had lived in a great many different places, including orphanages with strangers and distant relations. His mother was too poor to take care of her three sons. Uh, Oswald is this, this cipher or this empty vessel into which Americans in particular like to pour all of their anxieties, notions, strange ideas about America or the world or reality or themselves, and that he serves as a kind of one-dimensional Rorschach test. But, of course, that ignores the person he is and all of his complexities and the texture of his upbringing and his very turbid adolescence and, you know, the very few years he had as a, as a young adult. That was Peter Svadnik, author of The Interloper, Lee Harvey Oswald inside the Soviet Union. Oswald was the youngest child of Marguerite and Robert Edward Lee Oswald Sr., named after the famous Confederate general. His father died of a heart attack two months before he was born, plunging his family into poverty. Having no father figure in his life and an erratic and possessive mother were the givens of Oswald for the rest of his short and eventful life. Oswald's mother, Marguerite, is probably the chief architect of all of his many personal catastrophes. She's the one who is incapable of forging any kind of sense of permanence or stability. So she's constantly floating around from one man or job to another, obvious dependence on, on her son and a neediness and this really kind of very pathetic, very sad quality about her. What's true is that in those early years, uh, they moved uh, often. So, you know, he went to first grade in three different schools. Um, by the time he was 17 years old, they had moved 20 times. Stephen Beschloss, author of The Gunman and His Mother, Lee Harvey Oswald, Marguerite Oswald, and The Making of an Assassin. Right. So that's an enormous amount of instability just in terms of everyday life. And so, you know, he was already a, you know, a boy that was, like his mother, belligerent, uh, difficult to make friends, uh, often angry. When I knew him, he lived in Exchange Alley. I think it was 126 Exchange Place or Alley. Uh, it was a small apartment, and it lived ab above the pool rooms. And uh, in that area, there's nothing but pool rooms and bar rooms, and it's sort of almost a skid row. It's a very bad uh, neighborhood. That was Edward Vobel, a childhood friend who knew Oswald when he was in junior high. He came in uh, Burry God's 
uh, mid-semester, and uh, he had uh, a fight with a couple of boys, and that's how I first uh, saw him. And, uh, well, um, he didn't uh, seem to mix too well with the uh, rest of the uh, boys or the girls or anyone there at the school. He didn't seem to have any uh, friends or he didn't seem to be really interested in anything. Uh, he didn't participate in any extracurricular activities. Uh, he was just a, a loner, it seemed like. His mother, as Stephen Beschloss says, she does not understand that Lee's withdrawal is a form of violent protest against his neglect by her and represents his reaction to a complete absence of any real family life. In the summer of 1952, his mother took Lee to New York City where they lived for a short time with his half-brother, John. Oswald and his mother were asked to leave after an argument in which Oswald allegedly struck his mother and threatened John's wife with a pocket knife. For a time, Oswald was enrolled in school, but skipped, mostly riding the subways and spending time at the Bronx Zoo. His absence from school brought the attention of the courts. Mr. Carroll, what is the story of your early association with Lee Oswald? Well, actually, my involvement in the case is that I happened to be the probation officer who was assigned to make an investigation and report when this boy was first brought into the Domestic Relations Court Children's Division here in New York. He was brought in, as you know, uh, because he'd been truanting from school. He had been absent 47 days from a period from October till January. This boy was in a uh, potentially dangerous situation he was seemingly withdrawing from society and from people that he didn't want to mix with other boys his age, uh, didn't want to mix with people, he didn't want to relate to anyone. All he wanted to do was just remain home and watch television. And this is what his day would normally consist of. He, would, he was just actually uh, living in a world of uh, fantasy or just an illusory world. The judge asked psychiatrist Dr. Renatus Hartogs to talk to Oswald and provide his own assessment summary of Lee, I think, are, are specific and interesting. I mean, he talked about him as having superior mental resources. Uh, he also described his intense anxiety, his shyness, his feelings of awkwardness and insecurity. Um, but he also talked about him having a vivid fantasy life uh, and that that turned around the topics of omnipotence and power. Uh, and, and that was a way for him, as he put it, to compensate for his present shortcomings and frustrations. Uh, he asked him about, uh, you know, do you prefer the company of boys over girls? And Lee said, I dislike everybody. Uh, and his summary was, you know, first of all, he said that he has sort of passive aggressive tendencies and, you know, saw sort of schizoid personality features. But he said this, which I think is very uh, comprehensible. He said, Lee has to be seen as an emotionally quite disturbed youngster who suffers under the impact of really existing emotional isolation and deprivation, lack of affection, absence of family life, and rejection by a self-involved and conflicted mother. Now, to me, that you, you don't really get a much better summary, I think, of wh where he was at age 13 and what were the kind of dynamics that uh, continued to play in his life later. From my own investigation, I felt that the situation was a poor one at home, to say the least. Uh, the mother was busily employed. Uh, 
she seemed to have her own problems and be weighted down with many things, you know, peculiar to her. The boy had no one else with whom to turn to. He was alone. He had no friends. And I felt that this boy needed uh, looking after. You know, his father had died about two months after the boy was born. So that he never really had a father figure. And I felt that a boy like this not only needed uh, close supervision, but that he also needed help in terms of uh, what I thought was an emotional disturbance that he had, and which was later subsequently brought up by the psychiatric report. I think it's a seismic moment in the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, the life of a 13-year-old. That's a, a moment that could have gone two different directions. You know, he was surrounded by mental health professionals who saw what the problems were and were motivated to do something about it. And and Marguerite uh, didn't want them meddling in what she thought was her business. And Lee never got the help that he needed. And I think uh, the opportunity for real change for him to move down a, a healthier path was ended, um, ended forever. For Oswald, the Marines was the absent father figure he never had, a model of what a young man should be. Oswald fantasized magnificent ideas for humanity, but had a pretty lousy day job in the Marine Corps and wasn't considered to be very good at it. After he accidentally shot himself in the arm with a derringer, he was charged with negligence and court-martialed. He was sentenced to hard labor for 20 days and had $25 forfeited from his pay and demoted. Deployed from El Toro in California to the Marine Radar Station at Atsugi, Japan, Oswald got himself in more trouble, going from being a mess cook to the brig for spilling a drink on a sergeant and trying to fight him. He seemed to mellow some when he got a girlfriend, a hostess at a high-class Tokyo nightclub. Out of his league, one of his fellow Marines commented. On the base, Oswald had the duty of scouting for incoming foreign aircraft, such as straying Russian or Chinese planes, which would then be intercepted by American planes. And the base also housed the secret U-2 spy plane. When John Wayne dined with the Marines in his unit, you can see Oswald in the photograph, standing in the doorway. Did he cook America's iconic cowboy ice steak? On September 11, 1959, Oswald received a hardship discharge from active service, claiming his mother needed care. This was a lie. His brother Bobby told an interviewer that Lee's favorite TV show when they were growing up was I Led Three Lives. This is a story, a fantastically true story, from the files of Herbert A. Philbrick, who for nine frightening years did lead three lives. Citizen, communist, counter-spy. Maybe inspired by the TV show, Oswald began planning a second life as a spy. He told no one about his audacious plan. First, he sent an application to Albert Schweitzer College in Switzerland to study there the following year. The school president wrote back that he could begin classes in the spring of 1960. This was the first step in his elaborate ruse to enter Europe. Living frugally, Oswald had saved a few hundred dollars from his two years and 10 months of service. 
He took a boat from New Orleans to Le Havre in France nine days after his discharge. He then took a military transport flight from London to Finland. Once there, he stayed at one of the nicest hotels in Helsinki, a few blocks away from the Soviet embassy. Soon after, he walked into the embassy and purchased a tourist voucher to Moscow for $111. Tourists to the USSR were still a novelty, but Khrushchev's visit to the US in September 1959 had loosened restrictions. He had been impressed by the interstate highways and the motels along the way. Visiting Russia had been a passion for leftist intellectuals in the 1920s and 30s, but tourism was not for regular folks. If anything, the early visitors ruined tourism for Russia by writing disappointed books about the miserable everyday lives of the workers and peasants who looked so good in the propaganda posters. The train fare from Helsinki to Moscow was $44 for the cheap seats. In Moscow, Oswald checked into the Hotel Berlin where a three and a half foot stuffed bear stood in the lobby. He paid $1.50 a night. Little did anyone know that Oswald's plan was to defect to the Soviet Union and find his utopian paradise on the other side of the Iron Curtain. He was not interested in the USSR's tourist wonders. As soon as he settled in his hotel room, Oswald began to keep a diary he called Historic Diary, a title worthy of his self-importance, intended as a resource for the future, but not quite in the way Oswald expected. In Moscow, he was met by the obligatory in-tourist guide, who was invariably a KGB informer. He wrote in the Historic Diary, Meet my in-tourist guide, Rima Sharikova. I explained to her I wish to apply for Russian citizenship. She asks about myself and my reasons for doing this. I explain that I am a communist, etc. She is politely sympathetic but uneasy. She feels sorry for me. I am something new. Next day was Oswald's 20th birthday. Sharikova liked the young American idealist. She took him to visit Lenin's grave and gave him a present, a book, The Idiot by Dostoevsky in Russian. The irony escaped the wannabe communist. Give this intelligent young woman a hand for trying, albeit slyly, to save Oswald from himself. Lenin's preserved head is stuffed to the Soviet newspaper called Pravda, or The Truth. The Pravda is anything but. An organ of Soviet propaganda, it is filled with optimistic lies intended to show the grim reality of the USSR as the workers' paradise. Oswald is ready to die for. The idiot couldn't have been a more appropriate birthday present. Idiots of the world, unite. Rima Sharikova isn't the only Russian who tried to subtly dissuade the young man from renouncing his US citizenship in order to become a Soviet. Even the succession of KGB agents he encountered afterwards tried, but Oswald had made up his mind. At the US Embassy in Moscow, Oswald plopped his US passport down on the desk belonging to Richard E. Snyder, the senior counselor official and CIA operative formerly stationed in Tokyo when Oswald was there. 
Snyder recalls the account in a later interview. He put a piece of paper on my desk. It said, I have come to revoke my American citizenship. I have applied for Soviet citizenship. He also volunteered the information that he'd been a, uh, a radar technician. And uh, when he became a Soviet citizen, he intended to offer to the Soviet authorities everything that he had learned. In his diary, Oswald wrote about this visit on October 31, 1959. I have decided to take Soviet citizenship and would like to legally dissolve my U.S. citizenship. Snyder says I am a fool and says the dissolution papers are long in preparing. From this day forward, I consider myself not a citizen of the USA. What Oswald was threatening to hand over to the KGB were the radar codes from the military base he was stationed in while a Marine in Japan. Codes that could be used to track the secret U-2 spy planes flying over the Soviet Union, taking reconnaissance photos of Soviet missiles. And on May 1st, 1960, the unexpected happened. Secret reconnaissance of Russia by high-flying American U-2 jets ended when one was downed deep in Soviet territory. Its pilot, Francis Powers, was made the subject of a showcase trial. Powers' family was in the courtroom as Russia began massive exploitation of this propaganda windfall. Powers' conviction was inevitable and the U-2 affair became Khrushchev's pretext to torpedo the Paris summit conference. But Mr. K's ultimatums to the big three overplayed his propaganda advantage. The codes for the radar station and U-2 spy plane had been changed long before his defection. Like a character from his favorite TV show, I Led Three Lives, Oswald would have liked to be a traitor, but he had no secrets. Oswald was determined, nonetheless, to prove his communist bona fides. He would prove his usefulness. From Oswald's vantage point, it was a very kind of romantic and mythologized and very emotional kind of engagement. From the Soviet point of view, it was it was transactional. It was a question of what do you have to offer us? And and immediately after they determined that he had nothing to offer them. Of course, they, they rejected his, his application to, to stick around. So Oswald, despondent over the obtuseness of the faithless, attempted to commit suicide. He attempted it dramatically by slashing one of his wrists in the bathtub. In the historic diary, he describes himself dying in the swirling, reddening, bloody water to the accompaniment of violin music drifting in from the outside. He is found by Sherikova, his guide and translator, the next morning. Oswald recovered in a Soviet hospital, but he still had a way to go to convince the authorities, Soviet and American, that he must remain in Russia and become a Soviet. While he recovers from superficial wounds, he is transferred to the Metropole, the deluxe Moscow hotel where all the ashtrays and light fixtures are bought. Here, Oswald writes to the Supreme Soviet of the USSR explaining his reasons for defecting. I want citizenship because I am a communist and a worker. I have lived in a decadent capitalist society where workers are slaves. I have seen American imperialism in all its forms.
Let the clouds of the Cold War part again for a moment. The Soviets find it bizarre to hear their own propaganda coming out of the mouth of this young American. They themselves have long before stopped believing in it, but as long as anybody else does, they will have a job. For almost the entire existence of the Soviet Union, the KGB recruited young idealists. In the early 60s, there are fewer useful idiots coming in from the West, so young Oswald is something of a rare bird. While still at the Metropole in Moscow, Oswald is interviewed by American reporter Aline Mosby for UPI. Lee Harvey Oswald struck me as a young boy full of bitterness and hate. Someone uh, not too well educated, not uh, certainly not a brilliant person. I would say he was extremely superficial, very immature, and very misinformed. The 20th century was a maze of paper. Making one's way through the towers and tunnels of bureaucracy was difficult and dangerous. But for Oswald, things seemed to go smoothly. He is, unlike any satirical figure, a true believer. The KGB officials opened the file on him. He was only 20 years old, a kid with very little education, self-thought, yet with almost no money, he orchestrated an intricate trip to the Soviet Union at a time when few Westerners felt the desire to go there. Was this determination proof that there was still enough spark left in communism to make a believer? The impish angel hovering over the poor in spirit might have had a soft spot for the likes of Oswald. And history had its own twisted agenda. When he spoke, he held his chin very stiff, stiffly, and, and his mouth was tight and thin. When he spoke of the United States, the, the hostility that he felt for his country was quite evident. Afterward, I remember thinking what, what an unbalanced, extremely emotionally immature fellow he was. In fact, when other correspondents in Moscow asked me how the interview had gone, I had described him as being, well, he was just a little weird. Of course, this was Oswald, one of a kind. Or were there others? History rarely throws away a mold. It just keeps repeating itself until it forgets. He went to Russia, and that blew my mind. You know, one day, Bud Simcoe, my friend, brings me a copy of the Stars and Stripes, and he says, look at this. And they're on page, maybe page three. There's an article, and it said, today or yesterday or whatever it was, Lee H. Oswald, an ex-Marine, walked into the American embassy in Moscow and plopped his passport down and said he wanted to renounce his American citizenship. Kerry writes, It was not until then that I really believed his commitment to communism was serious. I was surprised. I wondered how did he come to his decision. I began to ponder the problem. So uh, it was really uh, a weird experience for me because I was writing this novel uh, based on Oswald, when Oswald defected to the Soviet Union, I decided to write a novel about a Marine who becomes disenchanted with the U.S. and goes to the Soviet Union. The novel, The Idle Warriors, would never make Kerry famous to readers. But it would later intrigue investigators. 
he would write the prequel to a great national tragedy in his portrayal of Lee Harvey Oswald. Carey was convinced that the idol warrior experience played a key role in Oswald's disillusionment with the United States. Lee was not the only victim. Many men became alcoholics while serving overseas. Sympathy with communist ideas was still popular in leftist circles. Alienation from American life was growing in many restless young people who broke away from the smiling faces in advertisements. In 1959, this was a hairline crack. Kerry writes, You don't give a man six months training in professional murder, followed by a half-hour lecture on the importance of good conduct and overseas liberty, and then send him out as an ambassador of goodwill. In his book, the soldiers are closely observed, in particular, Johnny Shelburne, who would one day make history. I based Johnny Shelburne, the main character, on Oswald and on my friend Bud Simcoe in the sense that some of the sea stories in there, some of the great sexual adventures were Bud's that he told me about. Corporal Johnny Shelburne, his scrawny kid who read The Count of Monte Cristo with his feet on the desk, had become Kerry's unlikely hero or for many others, the anti-hero of the 20th century. In a surreal version of what may have happened, Lee Harvey Oswald could have been abducted by a Soviet airplane he had tracked on radar and climbed aboard on a rope of idealism. But the reality of how was a mystery, even if the why was fairly clear. Carey finishes his tour of duty and heads to New Orleans to write his masterpiece. But little did he know that he himself would become a pawn in the grand conspiracy that he started writing before it existed, and the plot that he may have inadvertently started. I am Andrei Kodrescu, and this was The Second Oswald. A Ratapalax production, produced by Ram Devineni, written and performed by Andre Kotrasko. Audio engineered by René Veron. Supported through a grant from New York State Council on the Arts. All rights reserved.